On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses We Can't Dance. Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran, Paul Zotter, and Ken Gregory as we finish out the Phil Collins era of Genesis with We Can't Dance. Welcome to tonight's palaver on We Can't Hello. Dance. I'm very excited to uh, talk Joseph, about wonderful this to be here. Of course it is. You say yeah. that with, uh, <laughs> with somewhat, possibly somewhat less than full sincerity, Ken. <laughs> I've got the gloves on. I'm ready to fight this album. Excellent. Well, well, you know, regardless, this is bittersweet because uh, this is the last album with uh, Phil Collins. I mean, this is really what it's come to, huh? It is what it's come to. Now, it's true. We will follow through, and we will next episode discuss calling all stations. But yes, this is the end. I think it's quite fitting that uh, that calling all stations and from Genesis to Revelation bookend the catalog because you could probably and I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but you could probably make the argument that you know that's like they're sort of like the bookends that that. Eh, they're, they may not really matter. They don't really matter that much. Not Ken's love for Genesis to Revelation, notwithstanding, and Joe, your love for Calling All Stations, notwithstanding. They kind of just sort of, they I, they kind of s- start the band, but it's not really them, and it kind of ends the band, and it's it's not really them. I I see where you're going there, and i i would um, I would carry that maybe a step further and say they're they're bookends in the sense that they're clearly not books that are in the middle but they're they're a mismatched pair of bookends right normally normally bookends mirror each other these are slightly different but they hold up the rest of the catalog without being the rest of the catalog <laughs> that is elegant joe that was not elegant it was eloquent <laughs> not quite well, sure about that well done well done um, that was much more elo- eloquent than what i was getting across love it but but we're not there yet Tonight we are at We Can't Dance, and um, yes, I you know this this album came out at a very important time in my development as a music listener, and at this point I was ready to fully embrace what uh, what was going on here, and better late than never, Joe. Jesus. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, yeah, don't need to go too deep into it. You know, with Invisible Touch, you know, I liked it because everyone else liked it. And I I was learning at that point, um, you know, and, and yes, and, and, and ABWH were teaching me 
uh, to sort of open my mind and 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 everything else. And then there was there was a bit of a break, you know, before this came out. And in that time, I was able to you know explore and, and learn some new things. And and I remember, yeah, when this came out, and I was just I was gobsmacked. And they toured in '92, I guess it was. And I'll never forget my advisor at Delaware. Um, she gave me tickets for my birthday, I believe it was, or graduation, one or the other. Which, which actually is right around the corner, is it not, Joe? It, Your birthday? Well, Isn't it imminent? It, well, imminent, imminent from when we're recording. It's certainly not imminent. It will be far in the past by the time we publish this. Uh, well, I, I, have a I have a feeling we'll be able to wish Joe a happy birthday before we get off tonight. Well, that may very well be true. Um, I think it's definitely true. But, uh, I but think we've got a good 90 minutes in us with no problem whatsoever. <laughs> we never have a problem. But, you know, she didn't have to do that. And I didn't have the opportunity to see Genesis on the Invisible Touch Tour. And I didn't know when I was going to get the chance to see them again. And I will forever be grateful that she provided me the ability to see that show. And it, mm. it left an impression on me. It really, really did. That's pretty awesome. I think my college advisor bought me a bowl of soup one day when I forgot my my meal card. That was about. That was about. You must have had a good relationship with your advisor. Well, better than mine. I, I had a college advisor who listened to a, a demo of mine, and he told me he's like, Tom, you know, you don't have to sing on your demos. Wow. <laughs> Oh, wow. Oh, oh man. Jesus. True story. <laughs> wow. But I digress. That's that's some tough love right there. I had a voice teacher tell me that. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> oh, kidding. Wow. Okay. So, um, well, I, I, I wasn't gobsmacked when uh, We Can't Dance came out. It was a uh, end of college as well for uh, for me, and I re I was working at the movie theater, and the guy who was the manager of the movie theater who I had uh, shared an apartment with for half a year, his name was Steve, and he was a huge uh, Genesis fan, loved uh, you know played keyboards or whatever, and he loved the album the minute it came out and he played it a bunch he played it a lot at the movie theater and there are there are parts of this song that or parts of this album that i still kind of relate to him because this is a very long album and i just was kind of passively listening to it and he would like come out we'd be it would be going through the the theater speakers and he would like walk out from behind and he would be like, Paul, right here, the keyboard solo. And he would like air keyboard solo right right in time. And I'd be like, oh, wow, that's pretty awesome. I never noticed that before. And uh, he he sort of kept me kept me listening to We Can't Dance probably longer than I would have at that time in my life. And, um, and then this was a regular in my late night drive home from the studio in the summertime. So at two in the morning, I would be uh, driving home you know, yelling my best Phil Collins and um, really getting into some of these, some of these tracks. Just for reference sake, the album is a 
officially listed at 7130. Yeah, it's too long for sure. Wow. Well, we're all in agreement. <laughs> That's the last time we'll all be in agreement tonight. Yeah, I mean, like, like you know, like I said in our group chat, like it's a great album if you get rid of the bullshit tracks. But I guess it really just depends on what the bullshit on, tracks are. Exactly, or or, or how many. <laughs> but looking at this, looking at the wikis, and we we don't normally talk about singles, but they released six singles over a year and a half. That's, you know, that's pretty stout. I think yeah. I think looking at some of these singles, you might argue that some of them are the bullshit that needs to be cut out, but I uh, I'm just glad that uh, Genesis ended I'm not going to say ended because I know there's another album here, but the the Phil Collins era era on a solid note, and I know some of you may disagree depending on how much you um, like this album, but I, I find this to be a much better album than Invisible Touch. I know Invisible Touch had the big hits and the, you know, the radio-friendly uh, pizzazz, uh, but, um, you know, it's uh, this is a, a much more solid album, and it has... Uh, much more of a, a musical flair than I think the the last one did, and it's I, I think it's more respectable. I mean, I I say that in a, with an like a complete like an, a complete arrogant douchebag. I mean, I can't imagine writing a, a hit single like uh, I mean, Invisible Touch had the biggest songs you know on on the planet. So here I am, you know, talking smack about you know one of the uh, cer certainly the biggest album of of their careers but um just from a music standpoint uh, this sort of had the genesis feel and i'm glad they they ended on this note um rather than its predecessor hmm. okay so if they ended on invisible touch that would have been the sensation of the band quitting while they were ahead and just getting out and being afraid to do anything else. And, and, and yet they persevered and they progressed and they developed this more than respectable offering. I get it. I get it. It's just, it's just, it's just, it's too long. Uh, it bores me. Um, it's not as big production wise. There's not as much ambience as Invisible Touch. They forgot that they were an arena band and they kind of scaled down a little bit. And that kind of bores me. And like, oh. I, I was hoping that they would just jump in with the same size and intensity. It's just a little bit dialed back that, that, that bores me. And the, the bridges aren't as good. The little tangents aren't as good they they come up with some fantastic song ideas and they kind of string them out too much that's where i'm at with with this album i think my reaction to the the sound of the album ken is is that it's a little bit more natural like you said scaled down and not as ambient i i think maybe because i love the sound of the album i think this album sounds better than the last two and um and in fact you know we've talked about Genesis being behind the curve and we never really talked about uh, maybe we did maybe you guys talked about it last time uh, you know we've talked about them being behind the curve for so long and then with the Genesis album with 
Invisible Touch, they were like, um, you know, very, very much more modern sounding, much more, um, you know, relevant sounding, I guess. They, they seem to be ahead of the curve. I think with this record, I mean, looking through the other records that are coming out in 1991, I think this record sounds phenomenal. But maybe for me, it's just that it's a little bit more organic sounding. It's a little bit more natural sounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I like it so much. When I think about this album, I tend to sort of, I think about it as it's sound, the, the sound is more independent of the time. This is Genesis being whoever Genesis wanted to be, as opposed to Genesis being what was going on at the time. Mm. I think the acoustic drums coming back play a huge role in that, and we'll and and I think Rutherford finally has some guitar sounds that you can hear and sound reasonable. Um, and, and I think his playing is a little yeah. bit more, you know, more upfront and noticeable as well. Um, and Tony is still Tony. I, I do think when we get into this, there are times, Ken, when I totally agree with you, and I think you know some of the songs that maybe I would cut off of here is where they do dial it back maybe more than I think they probably needed to, but there are also times on this record where I think they really dial it up and, you know, they 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 use they use the 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 instrument sounds and, and the mixing as fully part of the palette. There are a lot one of the things that I picked up on just the last couple of times listening to this is you know the the difference in the the drum sounds a lot of times you know and and you know I've got obviously very very limited experience here but it seems to me a lot of times you know the the first thing that you do is you'll lay down your rhythm tracks your drum and your your uh, your bass and you'll get the microphone set and you'll EQ the drums and that's your drum sound for this record and that that's it every song has that drum sound and here they seem to not be tied to that at all. And, you know, so sometimes they'll be whatever. And then other times they'll just be freaking monster, um, depending on how they want to use it. So, you know, I, I, I understand, um, you know, some of the, some of the arguments maybe against this album, but I do think it does have a certain, charm if that's the right word for ending the phil collins era um in in my opinion yeah i'm I'm always interested in like different different people's opinion in the drums particularly jay because he says some things that sometimes surprise me i'm glad i'm glad you you called out the the difference in the drum sounds from song to song joe because i feel like they started doing that in in the the genesis album in invisible touch not all the not all the drum sounds were the same right but they were all electronic drums right so they all had this sort of yeah and this is just my my word for it they all had this sort of artificial feel to them so even though they were different there was a difference in timbre they still all felt fake right and they they and it's a cool thing because they're matching sounds with what's needed for the song which I guess is a heck of a lot easier to do with an electronic drum than it is an acoustic drum. But 
some of the coolest things that that have I've experienced later in life is when I'm working with drummers, and they they switch out their snare. Like they go, you know, just like you know, a, a guitar player would be like, you know what, for the second set, I'm gonna I'm gonna take out my telly. I'm gonna play the telly for the second set. Now, you know, I've had a drummer pull out a different snare and say, I'm gonna use this snare for the second set. I think it's gonna sound a little bit better. And it's like, wow. <laughs> that's cool and it's like that's what that's what they did with acoustic drums and then the way they affected the acoustic drums with sound with the uh, you know eq and the effects and everything they made different sounds for each of the songs as as it really needed to be and i think it that is perhaps my favorite part of this whole record because even while over time, I've come to really appreciate almost every single note that Tony plays on this record. And all of the um, great rhythm beds that are under some of his solos, early on, I just would marvel at how good the drums sounded for the three-minute you know, <laughs> keyboard solo at the end of Living Forever. And right. I'd be just driving down the road playing the air drums on my on my steering wheel because i'm like my god how did they get the snare sound is that not good <laughs> <laughs> well and and i know that um you know that that jay has sort of lambasted all of phil's playing after and i don't even remember what the what the line of demarcation was he seems to have no time for for late model phil drumming and you know we talked a little bit about this on the last two episodes but and and while maybe the the drumming is not as intricate as it had been back in the day you know and i've i've recently been you know editing some of our our episodes on the early um catalog and and you know we we talked to great length on selling england by the pound that you know maybe phil was doing too much at that point hmm. even even if he's he's not as intricate as he was you know back in in the 70s or whatever i personally find i really really enjoy what he does on this record a lot and much like you paul i find myself air drumming probably more than i probably should um, yeah. and, and and i also you know while we're talking about sounds and tones and everything else i think and you guys tell me if you see it differently i think vocally phil is you know really nailing it on this i think he's got you know in in those places where he needs to really bring the heavies he does it and it's you know i think it's wonderful yeah i mean <clears throat> this was what um even like 30 years ago or almost so i mean it wasn't even they were um I mean, they weren't even that old at this point. It was 91. So um, I, I guess to me, I, I wish, and we, we brought this up a little bit last week, um, it, it is bittersweet that there's such great songs on here. I wish this wasn't their last one together. And, um, you know, maybe we can go over that in a different episode as to, you know, what, what actually happened. Um, and why they they didn't record again, but um, this should not have been their last album together. I mean, age wise, I think Phil Collins, you know, definitely had many more years ahead of him, uh, being that this was '91, and um, you know, it was sort of the end of their 
Genesis career, but in in ninety one they they should have had uh, a, a lot more stuff. I think it, it also bothers me that um, they always had their cake and they could always eat it too. They always had their solo albums, and they were able to do their solo albums and have Genesis. It thinned out a little bit, you know, the second half of the eighties um, with the solo stuff, but they still had it. So uh, it's sort of uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me, I guess, Joe, with your comment that Phil Collins still has his pipes because, um, you know, it was only uh, 91. But um, I, don't, I, I think, yeah, it is a little bit more scaled back. I, I do like the fact that it's more scaled back. And it's, it's hard to call an album like this raw, but raw maybe in a Genesis way. And... Um, you know, raw maybe compared to Invisible Touch, and uh, it, it does sort of the the songs are a little bit. And I, oh God, I hate this word too, but edgy. They they have that pulse to them, and um, there's that pulse that they had earlier in their career, and this is a great album to listen to in the car. Uh, I, again, there's a couple out songs that we would I'm sure we'll agree later that you know maybe could have been cut, but. Um, this is this is this is a great album. So there's one thing that that I, I do want to sort of point out that I find interesting about this record, given the fact that I generally feel so positive about it, and that is sort of the return of Genesis whimsy, but it comes back in a way that doesn't make me cringe, and I actually quite enjoy it hmm. which is interesting because more often than not genesis whimsy has had me climbing the walls so to have hmm. it sort of manifest itself here um and and i i fully appreciate that some of the whimsy may be some of the things that people really don't like about this album i get it but for me the i find the whimsy to be perfectly acceptable and i find it to be relaxed and fun and it can balance out some of the heavies on this record. One one thing I'd add about Phil Collins' vocals, I like the treatment on this record so much better than the last two albums. Uh, I think when he was doing the screaming part of his register in the last two albums, it was just so over overdone production-wise. I think here it feels much more natural. He really does belt it out. And this is the thing that, that occurred to me this go-around. I can't believe I'm. it's almost 30 years ago. Almost 30 years ago. You know, this this was impossible to sing. Like I, you know, I'm in the car screaming my balls off at two in the morning. You know, <laughs> driving up through you know Montgomery County, and I just, I just couldn't do it. And I just was always like Phil Collins is just you know super hard to sing. He's just such a you know this or whatever. But um, as I as I um, older and more seasoned, you know, I try to figure out different ways to sing him, and it's still freaking hard as balls to do it, and. And as I was listening to the last, the la this last few albums and singing along and going, yeah, you know, I, I still can't, I still can't sing it. Um, it occurred to me that nobody can sing Phil Collins. I don't know that, and and I, I haven't done a full scouring of the YouTubes for you know the the to check out all of the of the bands, but um, the tribute bands and whatnot, but. There's really no one else in popular music quite like Phil Collins with the the 
the strained voice that he has and the, the way that he sings. And it began making me think that he is almost, and, and maybe this is not, maybe you guys would disagree with this. He's almost as singular as say John Anderson. Hmm. Like who do you get to replace Phil Collins? You really don't. There's nobody like him. And it just struck me all this time that we've been listening to. However, we've been listening to this band for five months and it just kind of hit me now. Like this guy is like a singular entity when it comes to the vocals. That's interesting. I I'd never contemplated that Paul, but you know, when it, the entire back half of this catalog, you know, you're always, Phil's always the second singer, right? He's not Peter Gabriel and Peter's on this, this pedestal. But yeah, you know, that's an interesting point. Now we do have an episode um, that Ken and I recorded with friend of the palaver, Ken Fuller, on one of those tribute bands. Ken, which one was that? The Musical Box. The Musical Box. And um, so, yeah, we can, I mean, from a, from a vocal perspective, Ken, you know, how was that? Are they able to recreate Phil or are they, were they just doing um, older stuff at that point? I don't even remember what the set list was. I, yeah, I, I've got uh, three guys on the tip of my tongue, bands on the tip of my tongue. Uh, the Musical Box, The Genesis Show, and The Farm, uh, each with an interesting take on, uh, you know, reproducing Genesis vocals. And uh, I, I, I appreciate them all. Now, are they quite as forward in the throat and brutal like 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 Phil can be and you know it depends how you want to measure him you know do they do the falsetto like Phil does there are so many different components to his voice you're not going to have anyone that takes the highs and the lows the falsettos and 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 and, and the grit and produces it the same way but um, 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 it can be done honorably but never exactly I get your point uh, shall we uh, delve into the context of the timeline? I definitely think we should. Okay. The Invisible Touch Tour ended July 1987. Um, they were not on the road a full year for the Invisible Touch Tour. I would say at this point, they were playing to huge crowds and, and reaching huge numbers of people, probably with less theaters and less dates. Um, so between 87 and 91 is a huge, huge, huge gap in time. And, and I like to communicate what happens in between albums. So bear with me, kids. It's going to be uh, a long ride here. But in, um, uh, <laughs> in 86, shortly after the Invisible Touch, touch uh, was released, uh, we celebrated Rage for Order. Oh, yes. And celebrate love, we did. Love that one. And then uh, 1987 rolls around. Roger Waters, Radio Chaos, Marillion, Clutching at Straws, Pink Floyd, A Momentary Lapse of Reason, Rush, Hold Your Fire. Yes, Big Generator. A lot is going on here. And then the calendar rolls around to 1988, March, King's X, Out of the Silent Planet. Operation Mind Crime in May, right before we all graduated high school, with the, the exception of you, Tom, just one year, one, one innocent year behind us. The absolute greatest introduction to an album I will always remember, Tom coming in 
to the lobby of CB West with mind crime and mm -hmm. popping up in between Paul and I sitting at the corner of those chairs and saying something along the lines of, dude, you got to listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think more than anything else, I remember his eyes. <laughs> his eyes were so wide <laughs> in excitement. And Did anyone ever do that for a Genesis album? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ken. Didn't mean to uh -oh. derail you. No, people did do that for Genesis album. It just wasn't us at that exact time. <laughs> um, now, um, 1988 continues. Pink Floyd, The Delicate Sound of Thunder. Mm. Oof. 1989 rolls around. Um, let me see. They've got Queen, The Miracle, Peter Gabriel, Passion, King's X. Gretchen goes to Nebraska. Merlion, yeah. Season's End. Rush Presto. We've already covered these in the Palaver. Tune in to our earlier episodes. And uh, we're jumping into a new decade here. Uh, so we get to 1990. Um, wow. Queensryche does Empire King's X. Faith, Hope, Love. Oh, it's love. Oh. Paul, you have to sing a snippet for us later. Um, and uh, Paul does a great uh, King's X kind of vibe and uh let me see here uh yes union 1991 oh yes yeah mm. <laughs> um marillion holidays in eden love that one mm. 1991 rush roll the bones um and uh october genesis we can't dance and my, my my apologies to all the frank zappa fans Mr. Bungle fans, um, Queen fans. I didn't read the dates for those artists, but they were still very uh, active in those periods. And the timeline of progressive rock at Wikipedia will fill in the gaps. Wow. Uh, you're right. Uh, a lot was in there. Wow. Now, Paul, do you have uh, any uh, pop albums to humor us? Well, I, I don't know that I could cover. I'm, I'm a little bit less... Uh, um, expeditious, I guess. Is that the right word? I'm not sure. I'm just going right to 1991 to, to decide where uh, where our, our pop sensibilities may have been. Um, and not, in, well, interestingly, one of the first entries into 1991 was none other than Sting's The Soul Cages. Oh, Lord. So, so it looks like it turns out 1991 is a very controversial year overall. Certainly, um, the blabber. And uh, uh, one that uh, received a lot of radio play on my college radio show was the first Jesus Jones um, CD called "Doubt." I think everyone remembers the song "Right Here, Right Now," and then they then they went away forever. Um, our good friends over at Saigon Kick started their uh, their uh, domination of uh, nice. popular rock music. Won't ever forget that either. <laughs> yes, that's one of my favorite um, favorite concert memories to share with people. Not my favorite one to live, <laughs> um, but definitely favorite one. REM's Out of Time was very popular. Um, Shiny Happy People. Uh, was on that one that was kind of a big uh i think that's what was that the album that really took them into the arena uh level of i could be wrong about that 
Um, I, I believe you're right. Yeah. Yeah, and and we were, you know, we were right on the edge of uh, in in early '91. We were right on the edge of like the um, enough's enough, and you know things like that. Um, School of Fish, all these bands that were sort of like the end of the '80s hair metal um, cliche, if you will. White Lions, main attraction. Uh, things like that. Alanis Morissette, her debut album came out, not Jagged Little Pill, but her first album. So there was a lot of things that were just kind of happening. Supermarket heavy metal. Kind yeah, of exactly. Like, like, right? we're, we're, we're still capturing that audience, but they're growing older and they're consumers. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's what I like to call the Me Too version of that. It was... It was, um, you know, any everybody had an 80s hair band and they all sounded the same and it was... You know, drum sound 5B, and we can record your your album in a weekend because it's just going to end up sounding like everything else. Gugadush. So, um. Gugadush, <laughs> <laughs> Well said. I mean, even Alice Cooper was still sung. Um, another highlight was uh, Crowded House's Woodface was released in 91. I remember saying this in 1991, how, like, when I would listen to something like Union, I would I wouldn't think a song like you know Lift Me Up. It was just like it wasn't their best work. It was good, but you know whatever. But then when I would hear it on the radio, surrounded by all the other shit that was out, I was like, oh my god, this is the greatest song of all time. This is awesome. <laughs> so there just wasn't a lot of great stuff late that year and our late late that summer. Metallica's Black Album came out. Mr. Bungle was released, which I know Jay was a big fan of. Um, Toad the Wet Sprocket's Fear came out, so that was a pretty pretty epic release. There's a lot of little gems kind of around all of this awful stuff. Roll the Bones, you know, depending on where you sit in the palaver, you may find that to be a gem or some of the... But um, then you started to have things like, you know, Blood Sugar Sex Magic came out in the fall. Uh, Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger uh, came out. Um, and uh, things like that started to happen. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't, I don't think I ever actually had an awareness of the fact that Bad Motorfinger actually, I believe, I want to say, did it precede? Um, no, it didn't. Never mind. I'm not, I'm not going to finish that sentence. I'm glad you mentioned Blood Sugar Sex Magic because that was where some of the prog rock drummers would have been interested in funk and chili peppers and fishbone and primus you right. know yeah that, and that's and some of that was happening um all that while when did when did nevermind come out when did nirvana's nevermind come out was it 91 well while you guys are reading i forgot to give credit to uh mike and the mechanics and tony banks with his bank statement they were still releasing albums during that long long period of time and i wanted to credit an album that came out two days before we can't dance that is fish internal exile oh that's right. a good one that is yeah, a good one. Ken, I'm that glad you I'm glad you brought up the the Genesis context because I've been looking into that as well. It's actually quite fascinating. So if you look at the the full spectrum of the timeline, Phil's No Jacket Required came out in 85, Invisible Touch in 86. Um I don't 
know when the first Mike and Mechanics came out, but The Living Years was released in 88. Um, Bank Statement in 89. Phil's mm -hmm. But yep. Seriously, also in 89. And Mike and the Mechanics, Word of Mouth, and Tony Banks still both recorded at the farm, both dropped in April of 91. Huh. So these guys were making heavy use of their studio throughout you know yeah the uh the the latter half of the uh the 80s and the early 90s i know we're not going to do a butt seriously episode um we are but, not but but you know daryl Stewart gets half a writing credit on uh something happened on the way to heaven daryl Stermer. and this album also has i wish it would rain down which isn't too bad um it was eric clapton was on that on that really that song wasn't he or, or am I really? I want to say it is probably. So never, never mind. Came out the ninety-one. Get this fucking shit out. Ready for this? <laughs> the week of September twenty-fourth, or on September twenty-fourth. Nirvana's Nevermind, Red Hot Chili Peppers' Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and Soundgarden's Bad Motorfinger were all released the same freaking day. Really? Wow. What? Yeah. Now I know that blood sugar sex magic got the occult the cults ceremony was released as well. Um, I remember very specifically smells like Teen Spirit not breaking until I want to say like December ish of ninety one to January of ninety two because I specifically remember taking a winter course that year. And, and picking up that single at the radio station and playing it. And I want to say I was with at least two of you at some bar in Doylestown uh, over Christmas break. And the, and the Pearl Jam Alive video came on. And I was stunned at what I was seeing. I couldn't even hear it. I just saw these like dudes that seemed to be completely different than all the other guys that were on um on uh mtv and so this was really this album <laughs> comes out in a time when when like there's a huge pivot in the commercial music world they're they're completely different yeah Her heroin will do that <laughs> uh, i'm awful you I'm know awful. i i think it shows i mean i think that it, it, this is a more scaled down record than invisible touch and um I think even though kudos can be given to them for the, the commercial aspects of Invisible Touch, I think maybe they got a little flack from, from the you know fans. You know, they um, wanted to hear a, a little bit more of a traditional Genesis. Now, you never know if they take that to heart or if they take it with a great assault or, you know, how much of that they, you know, they, they take and, you know, how, how, how much do they, uh, you know, not 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 listen to fans but i think that the sign of the times with the the grunge stuff that was that was just just coming out and the the scaled back version of the big 80s sound uh is is heard in this record huh. and it's it's heard throughout it's pretty consistent it's interesting tom that you say some of that stuff because i every video that i've watched interviews with these guys 
I I have never for for one moment gotten the feeling that any one of these guys have given a flying fuck about what anybody says about what they do. I just feel like they just <laughs> go into the studio and they're like, you know what? We want to write a pop song. Let's write a pop song. We don't we don't give a shit. We're just going to do what we want to do. We're going to try to write whatever. And I'm curious, Joe, because you're the one reading the Mike Rutherford book. If if there's any if there's any acknowledgement to you know in that in his writings about like out outside influences because I like we've heard it when we've watched interviews with King's X and some uh, some other bands like Tom's bringing it up. I, I think it's interesting. You know, I I don't I don't recall that. What I do recall is. You know, certainly, and, and I've seen interviews with them, but but I, I specifically remember Mike describing coming back in for these sessions and, and as they had for the last couple albums with literally nothing, but having done all of the, you know, the, the other stuff, the Mike and the Mechanics or, or whatever, that they they felt fresh and were happy to be back and appreciative of what the other two guys in the band brought. But mm. but yeah, like you, I don't really recall them ever saying that they were, you know, paying attention, if you will, to to what was going on around them. I, I think it, it seems to be just a natural progression of them going out and working with other people and, and maybe sort of with, with that broader experience. Although I say broader experience, you know, looking at Tony Banks still... It's produced by Nick Davis. Daryl Sturmer plays on it. I mean, yeah, the whole thing is <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy. Um, Fish winds up on that album as well, which is ah yes, worthwhile. So, so in the interest of of getting going, because we've got a long album to go through, let's uh, let's go through the particulars and then we can dive right in. So, we can't dance, as Ken mentioned, was released in October of 1991. Produced by Genesis and Nick Davis. Rele released on the labels Atlantic or Virgin, depending on where you lived. Band lineup of, of course, Tony Banks, Phil Collins, and Mike Rutherford, doing what they do. Track listing, No Son of Mine, Jesus He Knows Me, Driving the Last Spike, I Can't Dance, Never a Time, Dreaming While You Sleep, Tell Me Why, Living Forever, Hold On My Heart, Way of the World, Since I Lost You, and The Beautiful Fading Lights. Mm. We Can't Dance is the 14th studio album by English rock band Genesis, released on 28 October 1991 by Atlantic Records in the United States, and 11 November 1991 on Virgin Records in the UK. It is their last studio album recorded with drummer and singer Phil Collins before his departure in 1996 to pursue solo projects full-time. Production began after a four-year period of inactivity from the group following the commercial success of Invisible Touch and its tour. We Can't Dance was a worldwide commercial success for the band. It became the band's fifth consecutive number one album in the UK and reached number four in the US where it sold over four million copies. Between 1991 and 1993, six tracks from the album were released as singles, including No Son of Mine and I Can't Dance. The latter received a Grammy Award nomination for Best Pop Performance by a Duo or Group with Vocals in 1993. Genesis toured in support of We Can't Dance in 1992, which saw the band play large stadiums and arenas across North America and Europe. I think we need to go see who won that Grammy in 1993. 
What was it, Grammy for what, Joe? Uh, that would be best perf best pop performance by a duo or group with vocals. Uh, the winner was okay. Well, you know, the winner was Peebo Bryson and Regina Bell for a whole new world from Aladdin's theme from the the movie. Interesting. <laughs> it's actually a great fucking song, um, <laughs> and and it is a fantastic performance. But I don't know if it I don't know if it outdoes Phil Collins, but great. It's a moving song. I like it. Well, Phil Collins' big solo thing was the uh Tarzan soundtrack. There you go. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which actually wasn't too bad. Uh, other other winners of that year were uh Sting for If I Ever Lose My Faith, best pop vocal performance. Oh, here we go. That's Whitney. great. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that was after the Soul Cages, Tom. That's okay. Uh, then it was um, Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You, uh, was the best female pop performance. Best new artist was Toni Braxton, believe it or not. Aerosmith uh, came in with a best rock performance by a duo or a group with vocal. Best hard rock performance, Stone Temple Pilots with Plush. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Sorry, Joe. No, no. It's... So... We've we've been talking for almost an hour, and we have just now gotten to the album itself. Can I can I throw in something about Mike real quick? <laughs> Sorry, I watched I watched the Invisible Touch tour live at Wembley, and, and, and I didn't want to admit it for the first couple of songs, but but Mike plays guitar. I think through most of that concert, it could be the entire concert. And Daryl's on bass. Yeah, I, I and, saw the and, same thing. And, and this is this is the late '80s, the age of, um, you know, uh, Dave Gilmore and Ingve Malmsteen and Randy Rhodes and 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 all the shredders and and and, and, and Paul Gilbert and I, I, the list goes on and on and on. And I'm like, oh my god, this this dude is just like master of the whammy bar and got a thin sound and he's up in Wembley and he's, he's no Brian may. I'll tell you that right now. And he's just kind of doing his little chicken, chicken, chicken thing. And I'm so glad uh, that you gave Mike credit for some better guitar sounds on weekend dance. He, he's, he's finally getting it like, Hey man, if you're going to play guitar in arenas, you can do a little bit more than this buddy. Yeah. You know, it's funny in his, in his, uh, in his book, he addresses, I want to say that the the Steinberger, or maybe it was in an interview I saw, um, but I, I remember him speaking specifically about the Steinberger and actually extolling the fact that its sound was razor thin and provided enough space for everyone else to play, which I was mm -hmm. like, all right, Mike, that's one way to look at it. You know, and this is this is from a guy who, you know, me has has like, as I've described, a completely irrational desire to own a, an actual Steinberger. I don't want a, a wood knockoff. I want the uh, I want the carbon fiber razor thin thing. Um, do it, do it, Joe. <laughs> I gotta find one. Um, but eBay. but but yeah, I think uh, you know. I think he his sound takes a huge leap here, and then of course, as you mentioned, Candy kind of goes a little hog wild. Um, you know, and, and tries to move into guitar god territory on uh, calling all stations, which is interesting. The wikis mentioned that he stopped using the guitar synthesizer on uh, "We Can't Dance." 
Which I yeah, have. I, I have to honestly I think say, should have stuck with it. I, I, I don't know that. It, I don't know that it really. You know, I don't know that. I don't know what it changes for me. Although maybe I just didn't realize I was listening to guitar synthesizers all these years, and it was. I thought it was just more. You know, Tony Tony K over or Tony uh, Banks overdubs. So you mentioned something about the sound and getting out of the way of the rest of the band, and I think that that's what. I think as a band, they are really good at this point of just, you know, getting out of the way of the melody, right? Whatever the melody is, everybody just kind of does their thing. And yet for the, the actual track, I Can't Dance, you know, that's, the, you know, the biggest guitar I've ever heard from, from Tony Banks. And it's not like your typical 80s sound guitar. It's a, it's a single coil with a lot of juice on it, and, but it's not a typical sound. Um, but it, it's definitely big and chunky. Yeah, it's funny because Rutherford, you know, we, you talked earlier, Paul, about, you know, in, in terms of production, Genesis always being behind the curve. I think Mike Rutherford, his sounds have always been a little off center from wherever anyone else is. Um, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's not good. Um, mm -hmm. But here I think it's it's fantastic. But it you're right. It's not. It's not really anything that, you know, you hear anywhere else. Yeah. And that and the signature elephant sound that happens in in uh the opening track. Uh I think that was him on guitar and Tony sampled yeah. it, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Tony Tony sampled it and jacked with it. And it it's he actually in the in the interview on uh, on this album, Tony describes that that sequence wonderfully, and and you can see him kind of light up like a kid at Christmas when he talks about, you know, I guess Mike was was doing whatever, and Tony was just you know sampling whatever was going on in the room at the time, and he heard this thing, and he's like, oh, that's great. So he took the front end of it and he slowed it down, and then he, he as he said, he played an E minor chord on it, and he's like, this sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I think that's the interesting part about, you know, the way that these guys write. And, and again, we talked a little bit about this, I think, on the, on the Genesis episode, where, you know, the, the parts that we've been able to sort of see into that process, there, there's a lot of just sort of random wankage going around. And the fact that, that Tony's just back there fiddling with his new toys... Uh, it just it's I just find it fascinating the way these guys do this. I don't know that we want to go through this song by song. That's, I don't think we I don't think we we do. But I, before we start, no, we could play the thumbs up, thumbs down game, we right? Could, we could play that game. We could play that. Game. You know, we should we should maybe um, see if we could interview Nick Davis because uh, he's got a little website that there's really nothing on it except uh, his homepage a link to all of his credits and an email address. Yep. So uh, <laughs> we should, we should think about getting Nick Davis on the palaver and pick his brain about all the fucking albums that he's mixed. Right. And why the fuck he butchered the mix on, um, gazpacho <laughs> and blew out my speakers. In my, uh... <laughs> wow. I can't imagine why he wouldn't want to come on the palaver now. <laughs> I mean, I fucking love the guy, but he he destroyed the speakers in my car. And all this time, I've all this time I've been bl blaming Dave Megan, but it was really Nick Davis. You can tell Sorry. it to the ocean. 
Yeah, so so maybe maybe we can each sort of take turns going through talking about highlights or lowlights, and then we can do the thumbs up, thumbs down game to sort of finish it out. That might be a, a more expeditious way to get us through. <clears throat> Oof. That's what I say when I'm listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as a general comment, starting things off uh, with uh, No Son of Mine, and really <clears throat> most of these songs, again, what really strikes me is I know you guys were getting excited with the, the drum sounds and this, that, and the other, but I, I'm just so happy to be back into songs that were of a prolific nature lyrically, mm. where it's not just Phil Collins talking about the love that he lost or about you know love or the girl that he wants or the girl that he, he, he lost or anything of the nature. And they're back to storytelling. I mean, they're back to the day. I mean, they've, really always done this more or less but there are, are stories and there are there's a lot of depth to it but it's also mixed with 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 good songwriting and and good melodies so I, you know i just the phrase you know no no son of mine and just painting that picture sort of makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck i mean it's just when when Phil Collins sings that chorus, it's very emotional, and it's uh, it you, you, take, you take it to heart, and it's really to me what I would love Phil Collins to be doing. Um, you know, I know he made a zillion dollars doing what he did uh, successfully writing the pop songs, but this is what gets me emotionally uh, a song like this. And as we go on through this album, I mean, the best songs are stories and yeah. uh, just interesting ways of putting it. I, I, I love it, Tom, because I 100% agree with you. And I, this was the first, no son of mine that you're bringing up. It was the first single that they, that they had. I think and, so. Yeah. And when you think about, and I don't remember if, if Mike and the mechanics, did they had the "Did You Hear Me" running song, but they didn't have the 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 in the in the in the years and the right. right. So he didn't really have a super big hit, but Phil obviously had tons of hits at this point. No, this was and they, this was after the Living Years. Was it after the Living Years? So yeah. so they both they both had big big hits, and and their first single is a story that while there is a there is a a pop music framework to it it's it's somewhat of a linear song and it tells a great story and it's basically like yeah here's your single it's about 6 minutes long and it's going to tell you a story and it's like i you know to your point earlier tom it's like whether they were getting flack or not they were saying this is what this is what we're doing and this is the song that we want this was the song that we want to advertise this album at the get-go and i'm with you the storytelling is magnificent just, just the, even the melody it just stand alone it stands alone when he sings that line it just gets you it just yeah. like it puts you in the 
whether you're a father or a son, mm. whether you're 20 and you're listening to it or you're in your 40s and you're listening to it, <laughs> you're one or the other. It doesn't matter. You could have a daughter. You still get the point, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's just, it's this to me is what engaging songwriting is about. And mm. uh, I just, I just can't say enough of it. I just can't say enough about it. But some of you uh, think otherwise. Ken, you have a dissenting opinion? Oh, sorry. I, I was reading about the, <laughs> the the motivation behind Since I Lost You, and it was just terrible, and it was Genesis reflecting on Aaron Clapton's loss of his son. I'm just I'm broken up. Help me. Reel me back. Reel me. Boys, help me. Well, Ken, for you, is Since I Lost You, is it a highlight or a low light for for this album? Uh, or did you never get to track 11? No, no, I went, I, I went through them all. I don't, I, I guess it's, I guess, you know. It's not fair because honestly, musically it's a low light, but I think what Ken's talking about and the motivation behind it, you have to sort of give it the, uh, the old mercy vote, right? Yeah, I mean, you can't vote against Phil that. Wrote the majority of the lyrics on here, and 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 he did it kind of in solitude, and and he knew that there were some of the best lyrics of his career, and Rutherford said there were some of the best lyrics of Phil's career, and they are really good. But you know, the fact is, it it, it you know maybe earlier on, if they were doing some of this deep stuff, it, I don't know, is it Sonic Dissonance where we've got poppy music but really deep? lyrics yeah, I, i'm sure i don't know i find Good. it to be a dud and a definite <laughs> low light for me i you know with all respect to the topic of the song it's it's um it's for me it's a miss on, on this one this is this is one of the ones that you know we could have we could have put on a b-side or cut and made the album a little shorter Sorry, right. so we're, we're skipping around. Wait, which song are we talking about now? <laughs> Track 11. <laughs> since Jesus I Christ. Did we skip all the way down to the bottom? Yeah, we did. Yeah. We're just, we're just, this is just palaver gone wild tonight. <laughs> all right. Well, Tom, to recap, we have Mercy Vote, Mercy Vote. Paul is Mercy Vote minus one. And you, you can either be a Mercy Vote or you can maybe be a plus one to even it out if you'd like. So, Track 11? <laughs> <laughs> track 11 oh it's definitely um it's my second to least favorite song on the album uh what's your what's your first least favorite tom it's uh never time oh god <laughs> i thought we were gonna be in sync there okay Can the dogs come in here? um yeah it's uh never never a time i love never a time I love, 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 love it. Wow. Okay. And okay. and and so there's 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 a so never time is a highlight for me. Now it is it it has the feel of a pop song, but if you really listen to the song, like it it's it, it's it's kind of linear. It really isn't. It doesn't like tell me where the chorus is. Um. Right. You know the melody. The melody is repetitive, but there—I don't know where the chorus is. But <laughs> to me, the the words are incredible. 
sort of the whole song is about a realization of uh, and and going through the of of going through the motions and no longer needing to be in a relationship. And I love how it's it, at the very end of the song, like it just goes so sad, so sad. That's the way that it goes. I know. I'm gonna tell you right now, and it ends. And it's basically like him saying, "This is it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you right now that it's over." And I just, I just love it. The other thing that I love about it is that the melody of this song, "There is never a time to say," that melody has permeated since Duke. So I mentioned it, and when we talked about Duke, that the melody coming out of Duchess. That melody is sort of referenced at the very the last track on the Genesis album. That same do 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 do, and then it, it it kind of appears again here. So so I just love the fact that this sort of type of melody is is. In the and maybe they meant to do it, maybe they didn't, but it just it's in these songs that are about hey, you know, there's never a time to do this, but I'm gonna do it right now, and um, or the idea of the transition between Duchess and Guide Vocal, um, where you know Guide Vocal is like, you know, take what's yours, be damned, and then and on the on the more happier side of the last track of the Genesis album where they say um, that melody comes in right after you know that I know it's time for a change right so there's something about the this melody and that feeling of something is about to happen that really strikes me and um, and to me elevates elevates uh, never a time even yeah, I, I I don't disagree with with what you're saying. I, I definitely uh, there is something to be said for that for that melody, and for the song if it stands alone. And same with um, since I lost you, I just feel like there's songs that should have been on No Jacket Required or like a, a solo album. I, I just I just hear Phil Collins and a wash of like keyboards and just very sporadic little um, guitar spritzes with a lot of reverb on it. And they fit. They're, they're not bad songs. And yeah. what you're saying is just true. They, they, they're, they're, they're nice melodies, but it's just to me, it's just not Genesis. I mean, there's just um, it, it. I would probably benefit if I if, if I wasn't so jaded by, I guess we all are to a certain extent, maybe I'm more jaded. If I wasn't so jaded by the sort of 80s Phil Collins wash that we all were sub, were subjected to. Um, and I, I probably would record, like it. For the record, I, I loved. And, and still <laughs> Sorry. You loved what? I loved it. I loved it. But go ahead, Tom. Sorry yeah. to interrupt. Well, and again... You know, I, I, I still like the, um, you know, a lot of those songs too, but uh, I just don't want to hear him on a Genesis record, especially <laughs> after, especially after some great songs that are on this album. Um, 
it's just like okay we're back to genesis and then you go never and then you got the whole wash in the 80s and the reverb thing going on yeah. and it's like, it's like time stands still but not in a good rush way it's just like mm. it's, it's just everything sort of slows down to a point where it's i'm just hearing phil collins yeah and I, yeah i totally get it i totally get what you're saying yeah right all right Along those lines, let me throw out for the for the discussion track nine. Hold on, my heart. Hold on, my heart. Uh, Is that yeah, the yeah, that's the one that worked for me the most, man. I was just like, you know, if 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 I could have just paid the fine and gotten the hold off of his heart, I would have. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 Again, you know, this has the melody, and if you're a sucker for a pop song, you go for it. And I, I've always been a sucker for a certain pop song. Um, it's, it's to me, it's not that bad of a song. I just, it's it's pudding. I just. Yeah, you know, I just don't want to hear it, it at that it, time. It, it I tastes think good, it's easy to eat, but you really don't need it with your dinner. Yeah, I yeah. think that's exactly it because I've never liked this song. Never. <laughs> There's even even in the tour when they played it, I was like, oh my god, why did they have to play this song? But I could fucking sing it from front to back to you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's there's one there's there's one ridiculous stupid part about this song that gets me every time and it's in it's in one of the breaks i think it's maybe before the last chorus when there's sort of like this this little breakdown going and there's like these little triplets with this teeny tiny splash ah and i'm oh i just i love that it it feels very stingy which might explain why tom can't stand it too well, well it, it does kind of give them the soft rock sort of feel which I would agree with Tom does not belong in the description of Genesis. Yeah. But so while we're skipping around here, let's talk about fading lights because oh, that, that has oh, going to blow our load right now. All right. Collide in major ways. And to me, I'm almost at the point where I'm ready to turn it off and like throw something against the wall. And especially when he, when he, um, uh, starts singing, these are the days of our lives. I mean, for Christ's sake, I mean, these are the days of our lives. He's actually singing that lyric. And right <laughs> after, I mean, talk about a cheese ball. I mean, you're sitting through this going, what the fuck? And then right after that line, it was bang in this dramatic part and you're going to like like an 80s prog with like heavy dramatic things going on and <laughs> Joe's having a conniption. No, I, no, my 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 fucking haunted Xbox just came on so I got to turn it off so it doesn't screw our bandwidth. But hold on to that thought. Tom, you're so dead on. Right? Oh gosh. And you know what is like this it is one of the most elegant parts of, of this production is that that last thing where he says, These are the days of our lives. And remember and the drums come in and there right. is just the most amazing reverb tale that goes yeah. off of his vocal. 
before the guitar comes in and it's just like it's just fucking devastating it just blows me away and that's just the start of it oh my god yeah this is like tony banks's revenge for having to sit through all these <laughs> sappy phil collins songs and play the, the washes of of dust and reverb it's like he's saying like okay i've had enough and all of a sudden he just like goes off <laughs> big keyboard sounds and and like different eclectic things that are going on and um, you go into this sort of really a, a, a prog piece, um, but it's like a, a big sounding keyboard prog piece yes. and uh, of just a, a big sounds. And he's just, he's sort of like the Phantom of the Opera at this point. <laughs> he's just like, fuck this. Now we're doing what I want to do. And, and you're like, this is the last song that they, that they recorded with Phil Collins. And, it's, and it ends in an unbelievable way. Yeah. And so and it starts off a disaster. I mean, in my opinion, I mean, <laughs> it starts off, you know, like the worst of the worst, but it finishes really the best of the best. And it's like the ad, it actually ends up being the last song on the album and the last song that we hear with Bill Collins and the band. So it's a it's a very interesting song. Well, I can't I can't say that I agree with you about the starting off as a disaster. I, I, I like it all. It's definitely the highlight for me. Okay. Um, and I and I, I I I could not possibly capture the essence of the instrumental part the way you did. I'm in 100% agreement with you. Fading lights for me has always been the pinnacle of this album. I could listen to that and nothing else, and I would be perfectly happy. Um, I never in my life thought that it was cheese i found it to be extraordinarily introspective and poignant and i love the sort of balance of that with the the huge just you know tony banks revenge part i, I i'm drawn to that sort of dichotomy and you know at this point there's a formula for the way genesis writes and when you have when when a song starts out with that with that drum machine, it, like immediately, it's nighttime, and something's going on, right? I mean, mm. you're right there. You're trained at this point. You're Pavlov's dog, and and they do that here, but it's it's a it's a really different spin on it because instead of you know being gunned down in an alleyway by a, a hitman or, you know, running over somebody, um, you know, in the rain, you know, here you have this, this sort of, and, and the way I interpret this, and, and I honestly haven't looked into the lyrics, so I could be totally wrong, but the way I've always interpreted this with the artwork on the record and the way this feels to me, I, and the, the thinking of the fading lights, I imagine being outside and contemplating the cosmos. And and Tony Banks's revenge is the crushing realization of how much there is out there. But it's okay because at, at the at the end of it all, you're left with this sort of peace about your part in that huge sprawling mm everything 
you know, definitely uh, introspective. I just wish Phil Collins didn't have to say these are the days of our lives. Hmm. I mean, but they are. Just, I mean, here we are. Yeah. Here we are, a bunch of middle-aged guys. I mean, don't you ever have those moments, Tom's, where you're like, "This is it. This is what I do," and that's not always a great feeling, right? And and sometimes no. you have to ask yourself, "What the hell am I doing?" And you know, so I. I I get it, but the weird thing was I got it when I was twenty. I loved it then, although I was always a little odd anyway. Um, so yeah, I, I just it it that never really that never resonated wrong with me. I I I see your point, and I'm not you know I I, I totally get it. It's just I I never I never felt that way. I I think the good thing is that they they end on such a fantastic note. As much as I might agree or disagree with you about the beginning, um, the ending is phenomenal. The second half of the song, it just ends in such a great spot. Um, it's, it's, I think it's a crowd pleaser for real Genesis fans. It's, a, it's just a great way to finish things up. I think it's as strong. And, you know, Tom, I, I don't exactly know where your, your beef with Duke lies, but... You know, when we did that episode, I was going off on Duke's Travels and Duke's Ends. I think this is probably the best instrumental section that they've had since that. Um, and that's including, you know, the Home by the Seas and, and the Dominoes and, and whatever else. Um, I, I do think it's spectacular. I totally agree with you. I, I think that this, this section, I think there are a couple times during We Can't Dance where they rival any of those others. But I think in this particular instance, this dwarfs anything that happened since, since Duke. And um, I think Duke is the line of demarcation that Jay said ever, er, anything since then, it became really boring oh, Okay, uh, with, with Phil Collins drumming. And I, I really like one of the things that I think is terrific about the instrumental bit at the end of fading lights as well as like living forever is that they've they're really the the bed underneath the keyboard solo or whatever is just as intricate and just as interesting as as the actual keyboard solo itself and and the difference in the drumming the difference you know he does the the um he does some work off the hi hat and then off off toms and the snare. It's it's he's mixing it up and then it'll launch into um, the ride symbol uh, and and the fills are just deliciously huge and they're so complementary to what's happening with what Tony's playing. I I, I I'm, I'm with you. The, this is truly an epic song. That is, I would put up against any Genesis song at any any time in their era. It's interesting because they really almost hold back because there's so much space in there, which is what I think uh, we all. One of the things we, we we love about it, it just it's almost like this like eclectic arena rock thing that just holds back and it it, it makes you. Um, fill in the gaps almost, you know, it gives you space in your head to fill in the gaps and just has you participate in it because it, 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 it holds back in a way and they're just not sort of going off, but it's, um, 
it's a, a very thought out uh, process, and uh, I should say it's very thought out in, in its execution. I, I and it's funny, you know. There, so I see three like. I know everyone loves No Son of Mine. I like it. I, I I've never fully connected with the song. Um, but I, you know, for me, there are, there are three biggies on this album, Driving the Last Bike, Dreaming While You Sleep, and Fading Lights. And by the time I get to Fading Lights, it completely makes me forget the rest of the album almost. It just wipes my, my, my brain at that point. Um, even though while they're happening, I like the others. But like, if I go back and think about the others in retrospect, they, they always seem to pale in comparison for me. That's so weird, because my highlights were um, Jesus, He Knows Me and Living Forever. You mentioned neither. Well, yeah. Jesus, Ken, Jesus. I thought you were—I thought you were bagging on living forever today. <laughs> oh, 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 well, well, well be, be, because the oh. yeah, the, the chorus is boring. The chorus sounds like a bridge, and Mike needs to step up the bass there. I—I I, I don't know what was going on there. It just doesn't quite rock for me. But um, the the verses are so good, and banana man, I love that. I could listen yeah, to that. Yeah, yeah, all day. yeah. Love it. So, so real quick on living forever. I don't, I don't know how everybody else feels, but I'm glad that Ken likes it. I, you know, I think that the bass, I think the whole song, everybody's just tripping over themselves to get the fuck out of the way of, of everything else that's going on. Right. Of the vote of the vocal line. But I, but I love, I love the song and listen, this might be the best sounding snare. Um, on the whole entire record, and yeah. when when they get into the the um, the beginning of the of the uh, instrumental part at the end, where it's like um, it's like and and the drums are like it's just like boom like in the car. Come on, it's just I, I it just drives me crazy, and I love. I love that whole instrumental section when they get to the and then you know it's such a small thing, but it's like to me everything is perfect in that song. Like the bass, could the bass be more more flamboyant? Absolutely, but does it need to be? For me, it doesn't. I think it's just kind of perfect the way it is. Okay, yeah, yeah, I dig that, and I mean they made a moody and introspective album uh, and ha had it not gone in this direction with son of mine driving the last bike whatnot dreaming while you sleep another scary moody piece but you know li living forever could have been early on it could have been one two or three but it just would have changed the tone of the album in a way that wasn't characteristic so they kind of buried it yeah for you know, for me, I I, I want to say I probably even made a tape back in 1992 that just did "Tell Me Why," "Living Forever," "Way of the World," and "Fading Lights." Like, wow! You know, to me, that's side two of this record. You know, um, you know, I just I just love them all. So I'm I'm surprised none of you have brought up "I Can't Dance." I mean. It's poppy, but it's just it's just a raw, uh, a gr gritty pop song with yeah. 
Um, I mean, and it just gets you going from start to finish. And it's just it's such a solid song. Uh, clever lyrically. Um, I mean, I was going through the lyrics today, and it was just like the play on different words. Um, and Phil Collins is the surprising rock singer when he wants to be. And the chorus really shows this. I mean, it's, you know, there's obvious parallels sometimes I, I see between him, him and Fish, where they, they do that sort of high, crispy thing. Um, and when, and, and, and they can give you that original sound in, in a rock arena feel. And, 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 this is one of them, but I, I think this is a phenomenal pop song. Uh, it's definitely a highlight, dude, for sure. And I, th- I think it's a. I, I seem to recall we spent quite a bit of time talking about the song "Owner of a Lonely Heart" and all of the little tidbits that are in there. I, I think this song is a. It it it's a clinic on how to build a song, right? Owner of a Lonely Heart, or or the other woman? No. no but this you know the the way that the elements of the song all like keep adding and until it gets to that final end you know where he goes "Mm mm-hmm and then the big gated snares come in and everything happens and um you know the build-up is phenomenal and one of my favorite parts of the song if not the favorite part is when Tony's keyboard that that Tony's like electric piano comes in and it's just like a I mean it's just like yes it's it's a it's a clinic I love it I love it yeah so wait when I mentioned the three songs that I did I didn't mention Jesus he knows me and I can't dance because the point I was trying to make were the the big sort of Yes. Monster prog production songs, if you will. Um, I uh, These two songs capture that Genesis whimsy that I was talking about at the top of the episode. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love them. I don't know that I always did, but I do now for all the reasons you guys, you guys mentioned. And, you know, before we got on air tonight, I was actually went back and I watched the videos for both of these. And they're just fun. You know, these guys are just, they're having a great time doing it with a song that is, you know, worthwhile, if you will. So I, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm totally on board. I like, I, um, you know, Jesus, he knows me. I gotta be honest. I, I think, I think you need to, to trim three tracks off of this record. And if I was going to do it, it would be since I lost you, hold my heart, and Jesus, he knows me. Oh. But but I but Jesus, he knows me is the hardest one to do it. I but because I do like the whimsy, I do think it's a super clever song, and it's it's actually after all you know after everything that we've talked about, it's it's a good. There's a that middle section has a great application of reggae. That's not even really doesn't even feel like it's reggae, but it's that same type of reggae beat below it. Um, I love the song, but it's it's sort of like on the it's sort of on the cusp for me as far as sticking around in the um, 
I've really enjoyed listening to it this go around, but I know that this is pretty much a typical one that that I would have skipped in the past. I love the beat on Jesus He Knows Me. And it's just non-characteristic of Genesis. It's got that shuffle thing. I mean, but I mean you could say that about that's all and you know, yeah, some weird stuff in there. I can't dance. The subject matter is about a male model. And the male model can't dance, can't sing, not very academic, but just has a sexy walk and has an appeal. And that is the storyline. But at first glance, I suppose, you know, fans and casual listeners are thinking it's just a statement of an old rocker who wasn't part of the original MTV wave who doesn't have the modern shtick. So it kind of works on two planes. Mm. And I actually like the second plane better. The real source of the song is a bit too cynical. Like, like why, why is this reasonably wealthy, successful rock star talking shit on male models who are just, you know, young and trying to survive. Because he's a grumpy middle-aged man. Case in point. Thank you. (laughs) Okay. I just thought it needed to be said. Let me come back to Phil being a grumpy old man. Um, I feel bad and I may end up cutting it out for, for bagging on him, but I'll share what I saw. There is an excellent segment in the Genesis on we can't dance interview where Tony describes the way this song was built and how they had the original guitar riff, but they couldn't figure out how to accompany that. And they tried to go big and they tried other things and it didn't work. And then eventually they figured out the sort of scaled back sort of bare bones drum programming was the way to go. And they sort of built, up from that, which I think is is fascinating. Coming in, you know, coming sort of of age when we did, and and being subjected, as Tom would put it, to Phil Collins' solo career um, with no jacket required and, and but seriously, some of the goofball antics on Invisible Touch. Y- you know, Phil had had this persona of being sort of the happy clown, right? And you know, I'm beginning to wonder if that was really the case. He, you know, he's admitted in interviews to, you know, having problems with drinking. Um, you know, he had three failed marriages through all of this. And when I watched the documentary on the 2007 reunion tour, Phil comes across as a miserable old man in that. I mean, just extraordinarily difficult and seemingly unhappy. So the fact that, you know, back in 1991, he's bagging on, you know, male models when he had everything at his doorstep. I don't know that I'm surprised by that at this point. He's a bleeding heart and he's written. I accuse Tony of being the the more vindictive towards his, you know, female partners early on in some of those lyrics, but Phil definitely had like, took those lyrics and ran with them, took the ball and ran with it and had his own, you know, lyrics like that. Uh, Uh, You you know, in this, I always enjoyed the video of this song that they, that they released mm -hmm. because it was, 
it was it was I always took it as sort of just that self deprecating and um and, and and even with the even with like you know the when you talk about the the topic like I always just felt it was a self deprecating tune of like here you know here's Phil Collins and you know listen and, and the way they acted out that video was him like getting nowhere right like here's the superstar that we all acknowledge you know at that point in time he was a bona fide superstar and and he can't get anywhere right <laughs> and and i thought it was just the video was really really well done and i always kind of felt it was self-deprecating and kind of feel the same thing like you know it, it sort of made it that uh, to me that was what the appeal of howard stern was early on in howard stern's career was like here was this guy who could do anything he wanted right but he he continuously and always cast himself as just a regular guy, you ah, know, and yeah. and like you know just a regular guy, you know. I, I I can't I do what I do, and I can't I can't get all the stuff that I want to get because you know I can't dance I can't sing, and uh, there's something there's some kind of charm about it that I that I always felt with the song that you know that and the whimsy the whimsy part of it that. That I've enjoyed. I still love it. Yeah, as a, as a tune, it's great. And I remember, I think in the interview, Mike Rutherford said that he came up with a riff, and then they wanted to they wanted to work on it, and he couldn't remember how to play it. Yeah, they had to go back and they had to go back and listen to it. <laughs> yeah, and he huh. said he had to work on figuring out how to play it again. Which <laughs> that's great. Yeah, it's 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 really very funny. So I've got I personally have one more thing that I just want to kind of throw out there and. Um, Driving the last spike, mm. I whatever else, whatever else you have to say about it, and I love Rutherford's guitar sounding like a train. It just floors me. So, driving the last spike may be the best song on the on the on the record. Um, I know you think that way. I've well, I mean, fading fading lights really, you know, does kind of slay all. And I said I would put it up against anything. But driving the last spike is um, oh well that's true because there is dream, dreaming while you sleep, um, but 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 um, yeah the this you know this goes back to the storytelling piece Tom that mm -hmm. is just uh, to me it's it, it's uh, unbelievable and there there is this there is this weird thing that that happens from what I've seen in the, in the interviews and the videos about their process, right. Where they play these melodies and, and Phil is singing and he comes up, he talks about coming up with things that, that he sings and he doesn't even know why he's singing them. He just sings them. And then he kind of figures it out later. And, and I think that's where you get these sort of hooky type of, of um, phrases like in the Genesis album, the sit down, sit down. Like, why would you say that? Like, I think that's why that, that comes along. Right. And it, because he's, he's maybe he's singing those words in the, in those uh, jam sessions or whatever. But when you get things like, um, you know, can you hear me? Can you see me? It fits so well in that just sort of ethereal kind of repetitive motion. But when you're thinking about, you know, like, I, I mean, I've thought about this, you know, I used to take the train every day to work and I used to, you know, go from Wilmington, Delaware to, to Newark, New Jersey. And I used to think 
like every stretch of this track that just like winds through the backs, you know, the backyards of cities and towns in Jersey, like somebody has to take care of all this shit and somebody has to, somebody had to put it here, you know, and, and we're talking about the, you know, put building the railroad across Europe. And it's amazing to me that, that he says things like, can you hear me? Can you see me? Because that's kind of how you feel when you're, when you're in the train, you're like, because you are feeling the results of all of that work happening, generations of, of work and effort, you're actually feeling it. And I, and I just love that part of, of the lyrics, but it's great storytelling. Joe, you're right, when the guitar sounds like a train, it's phenomenal. And I feel like Phil is playing, you know, the, he's playing the, the hi-hats and the drums in that same like a like you know yeah. some sort of like a, like a train it is i it's just it is it is a huge highlight for this this record and and given the fact that we know Phil's a train nut just kind of you know adds to it i think you know it, it's a, it's a genuine sort of affection okay so i lied i had one more thing i had to say okay and uh it goes back to the, the, the point that I made at the top of the episode about the, the drum sounds. And I specifically want to call out Dreaming While You Sleep here. Mm. Because when, when Phil comes in with that, that monster Phil into the, the chorus for this, you know, and given the, the weight of the subject matter, I mean, those drums are monstrous and they're almost they're almost weaponized if i want to say that i mean huh. just huh. just the 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 toms themselves are delivering the weight that that the main character is feeling it is to me it's striking especially when you know it's it's smashed in between tell me why and never a time where mm. that is so not the case yeah, it ad it adds that sort of haunting atmosphere that you believe it's sticking with the character forever, forever. Like he's saying it is, right? Yeah, yeah. Th th is that your number one uh, bit on this uh, on this record? I mean, uh, or is fading fading lights? Fade, maybe fading uh, lights is. It's, this it's is in like a, it's in a different stratosphere. Yeah, would this would this be your 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 this, next highlight? Yeah, this dreaming while you sleep would be number two. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, and not only the drums, but even the, the vocal delivery there, Phil gets that sort of plaintive wail to his voice that, again, you, you feel this character's pain. And I just, I respond to that. Yeah. Yeah. The vocal treatment's pretty awesome on this, too. It's, it's one of those cool things where it's, it's really dry, but really, really wet at the same time. It's it's that ethereal sort of dreamy type of sound that's pretty. Would you describe it as moist? <laughs> I try not to use that word anymore <laughs> these days. <laughs> All right, we, we've been going at this for a while. Um, we have, and I, I just have. And... I have. I'm sorry. I just have two more things that okay. I have to highlight. Tell me why the fucking twelve string fucking kicks my ass every time 
I just yeah. How does he get that sound? Do you think that is it just the twelve string itself? Because it, it's really envelopey. There's something wacky. Uh, you know what? All I know is every video I see of of Mike Rutherford, he has you know a giant stack of processors behind him and it basically sounds like he just plugged his guitar into an amp and just started playing <laughs> i don't know what he's doing but but like the i love the fact that this song like to me this is like a throwback song to he's you know he's like like the verses is him playing a melody on the 12 string you know, it's like, you know, it just like never stops. He just keeps wanking on the 12 string and <laughs> Phil decides, okay, I guess I'll just sing the verse here because he's not going to stop. <laughs> um, but then, but then when it gets to the, the sort of the, that real major break, the, it's just like, fucking yes, I love it. It's so good. <laughs> so I I really get jazzed on the on the twelve string of um, of Tell Me Why. It, 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 it's a lovely little song. I, it took me a while to to figure out what it was invoking because there is some kind of electric piano that's a little wonky, vintagey, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I, I hearkened back to the. 70s TV show The Odd Couple. It's got that. <laughs> it's got this like kind of nostalgic feel to it. It does. It does. It's it's cool. Yeah. So I think I think we have basically covered every song on this album, even if we we tried we not just, to. We did it out of order. So yeah. Uh, but the only other thing that I was going to add is that um, now. There are currently two members of the Palaver on this episode who are now 49 years old. Yeah! Happy birthday, Joe! <laughs> I was I was holding out for the John Anderson key, but I'll take what I can get. Thank you. John. <laughs> <laughs> that was the John Anderson key. It was ridiculously high. Um, okay, so uh, shall we shall we do thumbs up, some thumbs down quickly to finish this thing out? Even though we've covered everything. Um, how about? Boo or yay? Boo or yay? I like it. Boo or yay? Okay. All right. So, no son of mine. Yay. 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 All right. So we got four yays. Uh, Jesus, he knows me. Yay. Boo. Yay. Oh. Are you taking it? Are you feeling this punch cards? Tom, I think you I think, decide, Tom? I, I think this is I an said yay. Oh, okay. oh, oh, sorry. This is an instinctual thing. <laughs> I, I missed that. I was I was uh questioning Paul's nay, but it's okay. a, it's 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 right on the borderline. Driving the last spike. Yay. 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 That's unanimous. Um I can't dance. Yay. 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 Hell yes. That's unanimous. Never a time. Ooh. Hell no. Yay. Wow, three against one on that one. That was rough. Uh, dreaming while you sleep. Yay. Abstain. Okay. Tell me why. Yeah. Yay. Boo. Oh. I'm going to say boo, too. Uh, oh. No. <laughs> you know, it, this is, I'm kind of on the decision. fence. You know, I, I, I hate I hate that I like it because it's such a weird song for me to like, but it's 
See, I think this is, this always reminds me of Another Day in Paradise, and that annoys the shit out of me. Oh, interesting. Uh, huh. I'm a reluctant nay. Okay. It's duly okay. noted. Living forever. Yay. 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 Hold on my heart. Boo. 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 Um, way of the world. Yay. Yay. Yeah. Abstain. <laughs> that it feels like a nay when you just decide not to cast a vote. <laughs> what is what is it that the congressmen do? They vote present. Yeah. <laughs> no vote at all. <laughs> Yes, yes, I'm here. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Since I lost you, Boo. Uh, Boo. I yield back the balance of my votes. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a Boo on this, too. Um, I'm going to say Boo. Okay. And then Fading Lights. Yay. Yay. Half of it. All right. So <laughs> by the official progressive palaver tally if we are going to remove three tracks from this album they are going to be never a time hold on my heart and since i lost you um, yeah yeah that would be a solid album <laughs> it would be it would be I, I i think i could go either way with uh well i mean i couldn't because i really like Never a time better than Jesus. He knows me, but I like both of those songs enough to yeah. be either one of them. So we can we can keep one of them around as a B side. Yeah. All right. But you can't oh, put Jesus. Second. He knows Speaking me on a Phil solo album. I mean, basically, we're breaking out a Phil solo album, and you can't put Jesus. That's, he knows me. That's on true. He that's makes true. a solid that, point. That's a good call. That's a good call. But real quick, the B side, the song on the shoreline. Oh yeah, it's fucking great. It They're is great. great. I actually had that back in the day. I forget what I bought that had it on there, and I I can't. I'd forgotten about it until I was I was uh, putting together the episode sheet for this, and it discusses that specifically. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a great song. But I yeah, I, to it. you had it. It was some import because I remember burning it off of you, and I really really dug that song. Huh. I see. That would I, have been much better to have on the record. Yeah. Than any one of the ones we just took off. Absolutely. I, I seem to recall it had a killer vocal line, but I don't. I haven't listened yeah. to it in a long time. Yeah. All right. So, gentlemen, that uh, that brings us one step closer to finishing out the Genesis catalog. Um, and next episode will be an interesting bookend. And then we can talk about doing some fun sort of after-the-fact stuff. But uh, I certainly appreciate uh, all the conversation tonight. I think this has been a good one. It was a little bit, you know, less unanimous than we're used to, which is always fun. I think that's it's good for the uh, the palaver to have some some dissension. It gives us something to talk about. So, gentlemen, next time we will cover the entrance of Ray Wilson and calling all stations. So, wow! Thanks, guys. Cheers! Happy birthday, Joe! Happy birthday, Happy Joe! Birthday, Joe. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
hope you've enjoyed this conversation on We Can't Dance. As always, we've enjoyed sharing it with you, and we welcome your comments, thoughts, and feedback. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are at Progpala on all of those, or you can search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala, that's P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is, as always, available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.